But Mark, I, I have to tell you before we start, I just have to tell you a story about your list. Because when your list arrived in our email, there were two people screaming. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Keep It Fictional from the Port Moody Public Library. Now, I like to think that every single Keep It Fictional episode is special. But I would say today is extra special because it's not every day that we get to welcome a new member to the family. So we're really, really excited. We're going to have a new team member to join us, a new book friend. So looking forward to what kind of books they're going to bring to us, looking forward to new perspectives, new points of view, new strong feelings. And of course, for Gabriel, Fiona, and Corinne, and myself, that means we have a new person to argue with. We cannot wait. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you and I'm going to get everybody else to help me introduce our latest member, Mark. Yay! Yay! All right, Mark, I'm going to give you a chance to introduce yourself. And I've also asked Mark to uh, do something that we all did way, 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 way back in our very, very first episode where we pick five words to describe either the books that we like to read or us as a reader. So, Mark, take it away. Uh, Thank you, Virginia. So I guess the five words for me would be one, historical I often read historical fiction or saying like particular historical period, different historical events, things like that interest me a lot. So that's probably the first one. Second would be narration in a way, either multiple narrators or a particular narrator with a particular kind of voice that is unique and different. So even if it's sometimes like a little bit obscure or strange, just like getting that kind of weird perspective of a character or characters it's always something I find interesting in a, in a book, whether it's like a short story or a novel or anything like that. Third, I would say philosophical, maybe like just the different thinking patterns of the writer. Like how is, how is that reflected in the writing? Like what kind of perspective or like worldview do they bring to their writing? It can be kind of obscure again, kind of weird at times, but like that gives it that unique perspective and unique feeling of reading a novel by a particular person. Is something that I always like to experience or discover, especially if it's like one of my favorite writers. Fourth word I would say is relationships. So relationships between characters, um, not necessarily like romantic or like friendship, like that kind of relationship, but just like how the different characters relate to each other in the book. That's always something that catches my attention. So that's another major aspect. And then the fifth word I would say This one, I had a little bit more trouble kind of like a final fifth one, but just um, action. Like what's what's the purpose of it? It doesn't always have to be like an action packed kind of narrative, but what's the succession of events? Where is it heading? Just trying to think about like, how do they approach that? So that's a little bit more traditional kind of ideas, like the action plots, like that kind of thing. Like how does it develop essentially? Well, thank you, Mark. I think it explains a lot about my book. I feel like everybody's nodding their head. Same. <laughs> That's good. I think you picked the, like, uh, clearly the right five words because that really summarizes. I think we're just going to repeat those words when we're talking about your book. So yeah, welcome. Really excited to have you here to get us started, to get to know you a little bit as a reader. You have given us a list of your favorite books. And so for this episode, to celebrate your arrival, we have chosen one of the books on your list to read for this episode. So we're going to tell everybody about it and also what we think of it. And I've also asked... Uh, <laughs> Don't have to, don't worry, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Uh, uh, I've also asked all the book friends here to kind of like make a first, like kind of first impression guess, like, you know, where do you think your reading circle lies with uh, marks? You know, is it like a, like, is there any Venn diagram happening? Is it going to be like a complete overlap of your circles? Or is it going to be like completely far away that they don't 
they would never ever meet. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But Mark, I, I have to tell you before we start, I just have to tell you a story about your list. Because when your list arrived in our email, there were two people screaming. One of them was screaming because they have recently read one of the books on your list. And they were so excited because it's like one of the books that they really, really love. And it was, in fact, probably one of the better books that they read this year. All the other books are kind of eh. But this one was really fun, really original. Sort of some of the things that you described in your five words earlier. So they were super excited. So they were really looking forward to reading some of the other books. Another person is also screaming, screaming about the exact same book. But they were screaming because this book has haunted them for like ever, ever since they have read it in school, I believe. And in fact, it was a book that might have turned them off from reading forever. But thank goodness it didn't because they are here still reading. So that is the kind of strong feelings that your books elicit in all of us. So I guess we will find out. I'm going to let you figure out who that is um, from maybe later on as we talk about a book. Um, so I'm going to start with Gabriel because not so long ago, Gabriel was just like you sitting there listening to us talking about their favorites. <laughs> Um, so, Gabriel, which book did you pick from the list? So, I want to start off with a cautionary tale. When you see an audiobook in the catalog, just because it's described one way does not necessarily mean that's true. Because I actually ended up changing my book based on the fact that I thought I had acquired an audiobook of Jean Le Carré's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, when in fact I acquired the BBC radio adaptation. I was very excited at the prospect of a audiobook that only lasted about three hours until I thought more about it and then realized what I had actually got. And so I am not doing The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, although that was the original book that I had wanted to read from the list, partially because even though I didn't see the movie, I haven't read any John Le Carré, the phrase Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy has stuck with me in my head, just like in the back. I don't know. It's just like one of those things that will just kind of come to you again and again. So I was like, okay, could do a John LeCray. Look, I got the audiobook. That was a lie. That was a lie. Plan ahead. Take a look <laughs> closer. Um, I'm not doing that. Instead, I read The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas, and I am struck with the feeling that I'm not sure what I read. It's long. It's intense. It's from an era where authors were often paid by like the word or the page, and it really shows. <laughs> this is a long book. It's a book with a lot of plot threads because of the fact that it was sort of like a serial thing, and then also because it has all of these sort of, I would actually say like over-the-top elements of like conspiracy and plot characters, this sort of thing. Like it feels like a precursor to comics. It feels like a precursor to maybe some more like pulpy things, which is weird because when you think of Dumas, you think of something that's a little more, or at least I would think of something that's maybe a little more high culture. Like you're like a man of class, if you enjoy uh, Alexander Dumas. But like in my head, I'm just like, yeah, this is like some great Sherlock Holmes style Conan Doyle. It was coming out. People were like getting their little, I guess probably not newspapers the way we thought of them, but they were getting their little periodical things and they were going, what's he up to? What's Dante's up to this week? So it's a book with a lot of plot threads. They all weave together into kind of like a tightly knit tapestry of intrigue and suspense and idealism and retribution. And it was published over two years. So serial from 1844 to 1846. And this is a story that's about love and solitude, about justice and vengeance, about happiness and contentment. It has a lot of, like, as you mentioned, philosophy, a lot of big ideas. And I thought that was really, really interesting. It's also uh, a translation. So it is originally a French book. I don't actually remember which translation I grabbed, but I will make the, the mention that as with any type of book in translation, I might not have actually read the same book Mark did because translations, especially with older books that are this long, also often like to abridge them. And they will abridge them in ways that are not always the same and that I might argue with on a personal level. And for context, Mark, one of my favorite books is Les Miserables. So I have a lot of opinions 
on how translation should work and a lot of opinions on what you are allowed to cut out of Les Mis. And they do not align with what people have been cutting out of Les Mis. So Count of Monte Cristo, my understanding is that there's probably at least a little bit of that going on where uh, depending on your translation, it might read a little bit different. And also you might have or have not, again, from a quick look online, looks like a lot of, I think, like certain plot lines sometimes are caught out or even in adaptations, like certain plot lines are cut out of movies and things, which I don't know. Don't know how I feel about that one. Because again, once you have something that's got this many plot threads, I I want to be able to follow all of them because otherwise you might not get to that same conclusion. There might be like a key moment, especially like the main character in The Count of Monte Cristo, which is a very sort of multi-layered individual who's very driven both by his philosophy and his actions to sort of leave out some like key actions and sort of see some of the key events. I didn't, I don't like that idea, but I just sort of grabbed whatever translation I could because John Le Carré abandoned me in my time of need. So here I am. Dumas sets his story in a post-Napoleonic France and it stars Edmond Dantes, who's kind of a cool dude. And also just as a side note, I'm going to be doing my best to pronounce pronounce some of the French names, but there are like little accents and stuff on them. And I'm not sure that if that's how it's supposed to be said. So Edmond Dantes, it's kind of a cool dude. He's got a fiance. He's going to be captaining his own ship. He's got a ton of friends. He's living the high life. Well, surprise, most of those things are not going to be true by the end of the story. Dantes gets accused of treason by his friends who are, you know, mostly jealous of his success. He's getting all ready to be married. And then the police are sort of busting down his metaphorical door and arresting him. He gets tossed in prison actually as a political prisoner, despite not really having super strong feelings for Bonaparte, but he's kind of being set up and his actions are being uh, misconstrued a little bit. So he's left to stew and think on what happens. And he meets Abbe Faria in prison, who is sort of like a priest and an intellectual who teaches Dantes many things. And he's kind of the man who makes Dantes into the Count of Monte Cristo by giving him instructions to find his treasure. Dantes escapes from prison and bides his time before beginning to enact his revenge. And this is at least for me, like some of the most interesting parts are once you've sort of established how Dantes thinks in part based on influences from being in prison, from influences in his own life, in history, in literature, in all of these things, he very much becomes his own self, but he also becomes many versions of his own self, not in a literal sense, not in like a Jekyll and Hyde sense, but in the way that I think he becomes very, I think, multifaceted over the period. And also he's someone who goes by different names, depending on sort of the scenario, like the Count of Monte Cristo is really like more or less like the the vengeance machine, (laughs) the archangel, the whatever you want to think of him as. And then he also has different personas that he'll take on if he's doing something nice, if he's doing different things. And so it's interesting because I think the multifacetedness of the character that he feels inside is also very well represented in how he physically moves about the world. And this is nice partially because I found some of the narrative was a little bit removed. And that's something, again, my experience with Les Mis that was very similar was that you don't have the same style of writing that I see a lot more often now and that I enjoy, where you're really sort of getting to experience the world as the character. It's sort of like they're telling you what's happening and then maybe the author will kind of go on a little spiel about what they believe, but it's not necessarily the character's thoughts. Like it's not super, super tied into them per se, And so you're kind of almost, it almost feels like watching a play, but there's no soliloquies. Like you're sort of trying to figure out what they, what they're thinking maybe by monologue, which is not quite the same. It's sort of like, yeah, it's just sort of an interesting style of narration that I don't always see in the books that I read now, but also that could be because of the genres that I tend to read now, which tend to be very, very based in people's emotions. Yeah, Dante escapes from prison, and he is a man who is forced to take justice into his own hands. He is acting, at times I would almost think of as like a harbinger of divine providence. He seeks like a very obsessive revenge on the people who've harmed him. And as someone who has had everything he loves taken from him, so too does he try to destroy everything his enemies loved. You know, as you do, as you do. 
uncaring to an extent for some really, really questionable things of whether this means innocent people are going to be caught in the crossfire. It's like a very like, you screwed with me and now I'm going to screw with you. And it sounds very intense. It is. But in a lot of cases, actually, what Dante tends to do is like far closer to nudging events as opposed to going in and creating terrible crimes. Like the people are their own downfall in a lot of ways. And he's just sort of bringing that to the surface. And he also does try to enact some goodness in the world. Like he's not a completely unlikable character. I, I don't always mind reading about unlikable characters, but he's not completely unlikable. He shows that his mastermind schemes can kind of work both ways. And even though he doesn't like ultimately write all wrongs by the end, he kind of stops himself from going too far at times and kind of grows. It's interesting because it's a deeply religious book, but in the way that any 1800s French novel would be religious, like it's a part of, like it's a very, very prominent part of the culture. And I would have been more surprised if it wasn't super Christian, especially considering that he's like divine retribution. And also in some ways it's important, I think, to the story that he's not. Like, he's still just a dude. So, now, I picked this one because I am a big fan of Les Mis. And the two came out about 20 years apart from each other. Dumas wrote The Can of Monte Cristo in the 1840s. Hugo wrote uh, in the 1860s. I believe Les Mis was also sort of at least partially serialized. But um, Dumas also wrote The Three Musketeers, which was an excellent BBC series. And I learned yesterday was not an inspiration for Disney's The Three Caballeros, although it feels like it should have been. The Count of Monte Cristo, however, also has a really funky anime for all of you out there like me who don't often have time or patience for reading. (laughs) There's an anime. It's called uh, Genkutsu, and it's got an interesting and unique art style. And so in general, like I really like the story. I thought it was very interesting, but it's not an easy read. I don't think almost any of these books, <laughs> no offense, Mark, would be easy reads. <laughs> um, I don't think I fully appreciated it. I should probably go back at some point. More likely, knowing me, I will go watch the anime again. But uh, yeah, the concepts and the deeply moral center, I think, were enough to keep me engaged. Another strange comparison, actually, the story reminded me a bit of Sweeney Todd. Like, this feels like you could have a musical. This feels not quite Demon Barber or Fleet Street, but... Count of Monte Cristo can have a little bit of like a a freaky Santa Claus moment, I think, where he's like he sees you when you're sleeping, he's coming down a chimney, like you could you could do stuff with it. And so I'd be curious to see when that comes out and whether I get royalties for it, because I think that I may be the first person to suggest it on the podcast. So looking just based on this book and like the other books on the list, I think that. It's hard to say whether there's going to be overlap in our tastes. I think Mark's books and taste are expectations and my books and taste are reality. So what I actually have the patience for and then what I wish I did, what I think I would find interesting, the kind of like well-learned, well-balanced individual that I want to be. No ability to focus on anything for more than five minutes. Does it have a movie adaption or a video game? I think that's kind of where we're coming from. Like, would love to see a video essay on all of these books that Mark has. We'll probably go read some young adult. Anyway, so that's, that was The Count of Monte Cristo. I would recommend it. If you think you can do it. If you think you can do it, then do it. If you don't think you can do it, you're probably right. Thank you, Gabriel. I'm going to just ask you, like, because I, I think you have this just before I go to Mark about why this is on his list. Like, um, I think we're going to give all like really long books to Gabriel to summarize because I think they are really good at that. Like this one, Cloud Atlas, I mean, just you're doing a great job of that. So, Mark, please tell us, why is this book on your favorite list? Well, I guess it sort of has like a certain position in like my reading life to start off with kind of like, it's the first of like the classic sort of quote unquote that people sort of get put in like the canon of like classical literature that I read. I read like the full unabridged version. It was like 11 or 1200 pages long. Just like reading the book once, like the spine is totally cracked apart just from reading it like the first time. Cause you just have to like hold it. The holding of the book actually kind of can be difficult at times. So that's how long it is. 
but yeah, also like as Gabriel touched on just sort of like the personal narration of Dante's of his life. And I sort of goes from like this sort of like younger assured kind of person to like this later kind of doubtful, like not quite as certain of his mission and like what he's doing in his life as a result of like sort of through the narrative of the story, like how he comes to doubt, how he comes to regret certain things, how he sort of still feels like justified in certain aspects of his mission and other aspects he doesn't. And just that aspect of him over such a long period of time felt like almost felt like you really get to know the character more so than you do in most other novels, as well as the historical period. And as Gabriel sort of touched on, there's like the version I read at least had like a lot of words in the original French. So there was like a long, like glossary of terms at the end, like all the nautical terms, all the historical terms, all the political terms, all the terms that don't get used in the 21st century anymore and things like that. So it had that, it had a strong flavor of the times to it that I don't know if like, if like Gabriel's favorite translation of Les Mis may have as well. So that sort of was like what I got out of it as well. All right. I'm going to go next and talk about the book that I chose for today. I chose this book entirely based on the title. I look at the list. I'm like, this is the most awesome title on the list. So I'm going to go read it. And then of course, then I discover it's also by a Russian author, which harkens back to like a really long time ago when I went through a phase of like reading a lot of Russian literature. So I'm like, okay, this is great. You know, never heard of it. This is perfect. The book that I chose for you is called Autobiography of a Corpse and it's by Sigismund Christian Zhanovsky. Sorry about the pronunciation. And it's translated by Joanne Turnbull with Nikolai Fomasov. So I have never heard of this author and I felt okay after reading about him because apparently he is known to be the most known of the unknown. Also, most of his books are published and actually discovered after he died. This is a collection of short story, which I have something more to say about that in a bit. When I read the back of it, because I have to interlibrate on this one, and when I have the back of it, it said these stories have been compared to like Swift, to Poe, to Gogo, to Kafka, to Beckett. I'm like, okay, this sounds like my type of books. It's going to be weird. It's going to be observed. It's going to be strange. It's going to be like all the things that like Mark and I talked about before. And because they are short stories, I can't tell you too much about it, but I will give you a little hints of like what they are like. So the uh, title story, Autobiography of a Corpse, is about a man who moved to Moscow, rented an apartment. And a few days later, when he was going home, he opened his door and an envelope kind of fell out. And so when he picked it up, it said it's addressed to the residence of apartment 24, which is where he lived. And when he opened it, he found out that it is from the last resident that lives there. And it said on the paper that he has killed himself in the apartment. And this is his story. There's another story called The Runaway Fingers. It's about during an audition, <laughs> during a, a, a recital, a piano recital. And, um, you know, like everybody's just watching and just admiring this like wonderful musician. And suddenly the pianist's right hand decided to detach itself from the person. And everybody watched this hand run, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Can the hand run? Run away <laughs> out the, the door out of the auditorium. We have another story called The Collector of Cracks. It is about a writer who's writing a fairy tale about a hermit. And this hermit has lived a very righteous life. And so one day God came to him and said, hey, what do you want? We're going to give you a reward. And he's like, no, I don't need anything. I just want to be able to tell the world about you so that they can be follow the righteous path and follow your laws. And so every day at night, all the cracks from places like from the ground, from a broken violin, from a cup, they will all come gathered around the hermit and so that the hermit can preach to them or talk to them. And then every day before the sun rises, these cracks will go back home. But one day, the hermit was so into his own preaching that he did not send them home before sunrise. So this is what happened after that. There's another story about a man. It's called The Unbitten Elbow. It's about a man who has made it his lifelong dream to bite his elbow. Everybody said that this is impossible. You can never do that. But no, this is his mission. And he believes that he can do it. So that is what he did. He even joined a circus 
not because he wants to be in the circus, but that he thinks that it can help motivate him and give him more ways to perfect his technique so that eventually one day he will be able to bite his elbow. And I think my favorite is probably one called In the Pillpole. It's about these two lovers. They're gazing into each other's eye and the man started noticing in his lover's eye, there is a miniature version of himself that is there. And he's like, huh, that's strange. And then one day, this little mini him waved at him and walked inside into the pillpole. And so the story is about what happened to this mini version of him and what is inside their lover's pupil. What did he discover? Now, I can see a lot of my book friends are just like either shaking their head or laughing their head off because I think they know that these are my kind of story, right? This is like totally Virginia style stories. This is exactly the type of the things that I love. And I am so intrigued by all of them when I sort of start reading all of them. But I have to say, I have such a hard time getting into some of them and following the story because, as Mark pointed out, one of his favorite things is philosophical. That is one of his five words. And so I find these stories, like, there was so much philosophical musings and so much ponderings about ideas and, like, existential questions that I find that it took away from the story like I I every other sentence I have to stop and be like what does he mean like what is he talking about and so clearly my brain is not ready for this and not smart enough for this so it was a very demanding kind of read and I kind of lost the story like you no know, after a while because I just like I don't know what is happening and I think for me when is uh, like when I think back about like sort of weird stories that I love what works for me generally is there's still something that I can anchor to like whether it's a character that I, I care about I still want to know what happened to them and sometimes even if it's the strangest thing like if it is like something that completely makes no sense it's okay if there's something that kind of like I can attach myself to but I find that I was having some trouble getting like attached to these. So it was a little tricky. And I, I have to admit, I didn't read the whole thing. I read most of the stories. Some of them, I'm just like, I can't, I can't do it. I don't know what's happening. So I'm going to invite Mark to come tell me that I, and feel free to tell me I'm completely wrong. I'm totally okay with that. But please tell us why this is one of your favorite book. Well, I would say that. Like as Virginia sort of pointed out, like it does have like the philosophical sort of scientific, like kind of like um, intellectual background that sort of characterizes his work. That's also maybe one of the reasons why he wasn't published during his lifetime is because he lived under the Stalinist regime. There was certain like hard line, like what you can, what you can and can't say in terms of like political philosophies, things like that. So that's also one of the reasons why he didn't get published. To me, I just, I just find it so interesting, like the weird things he comes up with and tries to tie it to philosophy, like in the unbitten elbow, he mentions how the philosopher Kant had the idea that like the transcendent is something that's just like always just kind of out of reach. You can't quite reach. You can gesture towards it to try and grasp it, but can't. And then that's the unbitten elbow, basically, to try and bite his own elbow. It's just always slightly out of reach. And there's like a fictional philosopher in the story who sort of uses that analogy to illustrate Kant's philosophy. That I just find like absurd and interesting at the same time, like almost believable, even though how ridiculous it is. There's another story that Virginia didn't mention called Yellow Coal, where essentially it's kind of like the present time we are now, where we're running out of coal, we're like running out of fuels, like we have to transition away from fossil fuels. So then a scientist comes up with the idea of creating what he calls an absorberator, quote unquote, to harvest human spite as an energy source <laughs> to fuel the entire world, like industry and like electricity and everything like that so it's like he just comes up with these weird bizarre ideas and tries and almost makes it believable in a way like and he wrote this in 19 like 30 1940 a time before people were thinking of like climate change like running out of fossil fuels and things like that so he just had this weird perspective that almost feels relevant in a way to me at least and he has several other collections of these short stories the publisher that uh, New York Review of Works Classics, they published a lot of his works. There's a couple other short story collections, a couple of short novellas. 
that are essentially like little nesting devices for more short stories within the narrative. Some people sort of refer to him as like the great short storyteller of Russian literature and things like that. So I just find him like the pinnacle of Russian short stories almost in a way, I, if you could put it that way. Can I put forward the possibility for how I think this could be a more accessible thing? <laughs> I would love to read these as creepypastas. I think that they would make great short story internet style sounds like they're really happening and then you get more and more freaked out by them kind of things because all of those sound great but i have a feeling that if you lost virginia i would have been gone about three pages in so i think perhaps you or someone else could potentially get away with some creepypasta fame by not plagiarizing but taking heavy inspiration from the person whose name I will not pronounce. All right. Okay. We're going to go to Corrine. Which book did you pick, Miss Corrine? I am going to preface this, Mark, by saying that actually there's a lot of books on your list that I really like. I don't know if I liked Monster. I don't think that like is the right word for that series. I endured it. But it's beautiful and wonderful. I really like the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. I love The Count of Monte Cristo. I think it's a baller story. But I think I just enjoy a good, like, raised earth story of just, like, leave no prisoners. So, and kind of hearing you talk about what, what your style is as a reader and what your interests are, I really understand why you chose this book that I have some feelings about so this story i think what kind of helped me is that it was originally published in 1985 it is according to the wikipedia article that i had to read while i was in the midst of it it is a cyberpunk thing question mark we are in the middle of the info wars in japan and our unnamed narrator which by the way i hate is a Calcutech who he is a human data processor and encryption machine. So he kind of takes things in and uses his subconscious as a key to encrypt information for the system because the system is the government and they protect the information. And then the semiotech people steal the information. And the best way to encrypt it is to use people like our unnamed narrator who is such a peach. Um, so he is invited to a very special top secret mission because the system is not allowing anyone to encrypt data anymore or whatever they called it. And he meets this young 17 year old who he constantly refers to as the chubby girl, which I did not care for. And he takes him into this subterranean waterfall part of Tokyo where there are kappa monsters that sometimes kill subway workers and then drown them and then eat their rotted flesh that are also called inklings. And as they go through that tunnel, she eventually shows him her grandfather, who also doesn't get a name, who is working at sound removal by using the skulls of different animals and tuning forks to turn off sound in people's heads and occasionally he turns his granddaughter off and forgets to turn her back on yep when he gets there the grandfather scientist informs him that he has some information that if he doesn't do it by a certain time period it will be the end of the world flash into the other narrative, which is at the end of the world, a nice little town that is surrounded by a giant wall that may or may not be sentient, question mark. Um, and there is another unnamed narrator, <gasps> another person that gets no name who has come to the town because he has to. And this town mostly serves to be a super sad place where no one has any mind and they don't remember why they're there. And they mostly just have crummy jobs, but also unicorns unicorns feature very heavily in this as a metaphor. So every day the gatekeeper lets the unicorns out and they 
graze. And then every day they let the unicorns back in. And when the unnamed narrator number two asks why, he says, that's just the way it is and suck it up. So to get into this town, you have to be severed from your shadow, which makes you eventually lose your mind, but it's not really your mind. It's maybe like your ego or your sense of self. I'm not exactly sure. And Wikipedia didn't give me a really good summary as to what it was. And throughout the book, eventually you will see how these two narratives interconnect. This is the book Hard-Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World by Haruki Murakami. I struggled. (laughs) I struggled very much with this book. I read Murakami books before and really enjoyed this, but there was something about this one that I just had to really focus on holding the book in my hand and not throwing it on the ground. Oh yeah. And there's a lot about libraries and librarians who just like eat too much. And then he has a lot of descriptions of her eating like endless amounts of shrimps and oysters. And it was disgusting. But anyways, so yeah, I really understand now hearing you Mark talk about kind of like what you are as a reader of why you really gravitate towards this book. It's weird. It's really weird. There are parts of it. I was like, okay, did we have to go that hard? But that's fine. There's like leeches at some point in a subterranean fish without eyes. You know, it's a more commie book. You just got to roll with it. And there are some very deep philosophical things about here about metaphysics and like the life of the brain and the life of the mind and like self. Um, And there are some actual genuine, really beautiful bits near the end. So I'm glad I kind of like stuck through it to get through the really difficult parts to get to some, some truly like astonishing things, you know, when you come across a sentence and you just kind of have to put it down and sit with it for a little while. So there were quite a few of that. And it was very interesting seeing an author maybe at like the beginning of his career and seeing kind of like themes and ideas that would eventually come up. Yeah. So Mark, why do you love this? It's funny because I some of the aspects of this book, I don't remember very well anymore. Like, honestly, I don't remember all of it perfectly well. And some of those like, oh yeah, that did happen. Because there, there's so many like little bits that happen, like almost non sequiturs that pop up and then go away and then pop up again later and then go away and then like pop up again. <laughs> like even for Murakami, it's very idiosyncratic in a way. Like I, maybe I forgive it because it's one of the earlier ones of his that I read, whereas I didn't read like the later ones later on. Like I like some of them, like some of the later ones like Kafka on the Shore, I just don't get at all I don't want to read that book ever again like (laughs) like so I always have this weird like love hate with Murakami where it's like the uh, you have to be willing to accept the bad with the good very much with Murakami and there are those little gems like hidden underneath that you have to like extract here and there to like put it all together to like okay yeah that really is a coherent narrative with like (laughs) I think it was coherent (laughs) and again like of Murakami's narrators, this one maybe had some like the weirdest thoughts, but also some like the more the more illuminating as well at the same time. He sucks. He sucks and I hate him. I hate him so much. I hated him so much. I woke up and I was furious at him. I don't like him as a person. But he does say interesting things. Yes, he does say interesting things. He has an interesting point of view, but I don't care for him as a person. Yes. <laughs> as most Murakami narrators, really, you have to be willing to accept that he has some very weird things going on in order to get to the good part of pretty much all of his works. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you, Corinne, for I lost count of how many air quotes you did just now when you're doing your thing. <laughs> Let's grill Mark with some questions. Because he has not been grilled enough yet, you know. <laughs> Let's just do a little more. Oh, not yet. No. We can push him over the edge. No, no. We, <laughs> we have other questions that we need to ask him. So, yeah. So, all my book friends have prepared just some, you know, like kind of questions to get to know you more as a reader, just kind of your reading habits. So, um, Corinne, your question for Mark? so bad because I feel like again I did grill Mark pretty bad <laughs> um okay favorite genre and like nonfiction, no nonfiction. oh I definitely read nonfiction. so uh, that, that's a definite yes for the nonfiction. favorite genre I don't know if you'd call short stories a genre but recently I've just been reading lots and lots of short stories 
like some people might call that a genre. It's more like a form than a genre, but I guess within certain literary circles, I might call it a genre. Very cool. Thank you. Fiona, um, describe your perfect reading environment. Probably like a semi-warm summer day. The sun's coming in or I'm like just like out in the sun. Not so much that you can't like see the screen you're reading on or like the words on the page, but it has to have like that kind of like warm kind of vibe, maybe like a light breeze. You get to hear the birds, just like very peaceful and idyllic kind of scene. Very nice. I agree. And it's very important that there's not glare on the page. Yeah. Like just the right amount of sun. Yeah. That's why you don't go outside. Anyway, uh, Gabriel, what makes you stop reading something? Or oh, do you stop at all? Yeah, do you? Because I, that's mostly what I was curious about. You were talking about books that you're like, oh, well, I struggled to get through this and I'll never read it again. And I'm like, I would have just stopped. Um, if I find there's something interesting to it, I'll keep going. But if it feels like it's too generic or like I've read something similar before, then I will stop. But with some of these other ones where it's like, it's just so different or so like it has a feeling like it's going to be going somewhere interesting, then I will stick with it. All right. And I think I know the answer to this question, but do you read series and follow-up question? Is it ever right to read a series out of order? No, never read out of order. Um, I will read series like manga or like some, some book series. I've never read those, never out of order. Like the only time it would ever be is like, for some reason, the first volume wasn't available. I was like, oh, okay, I'll just try the second one to see if I like it or not. And then if I do, then I'll just wait for the first one to get it somehow. But that's like the only circumstance I'd ever read out of order. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. <laughs> see, those are not that hard. No, I don't think. Maybe not too hard. All right, Fiona, tell us the book that you have chosen and what you think of it. All right. Well, I think everyone will really be relieved to hear that it's a match. Definitely enjoyed my book very much. I really wanted to read The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, which was also on your list. I knew it was going to be challenging, but I picked up the print version and it was like, like for me, it was like too dense. Like I, I really, I wanted an audiobook version because that's the only way I can absorb that kind of stuff, but I couldn't find one. So I actually went back to my second pick, which was On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, which was fantastic. And I absolutely uh, understand why it was on your list. And I think it really says something that it was probably like the most accessible book on the list because it's not an accessible book. It is shorter, but it is by a poet. There's a lot of upsetting subject matters. Yeah. And it's just like very twisty turny and like not plot focused, which, you know, for me is something I like, but there, you know, it, it, it's not something that I would say like, oh, this book is a breeze. So I did actually listen to the audiobook version, which was wonderful because the author has just a beautiful, beautiful, light, androgynous voice that was so pleasant to listen to and really made me feel very close to the book. Like this book was a friend. So the what plot there was is the book is about uh, Little Dog and Little Dog uh, was born in Ho Chi Minh City and then Early in life, uh, he came to the States with his mom. Uh, they were refugees. They spent some time in the Philippines before. So a lot of this is like semi-autobiographical. And I struggle with, with that kind of book because I always read them as directly autobiographical. But the author has been very clear that it is not an autobiography. Uh, it has been you know, changed in a lot of ways, but, but draws from, from his life. So... When they come to the States, uh, it is him, his mother and his grandmother, and his dad leaves at a certain point. And it's sort of, his dad is not an important part of, of the novel. Uh, he's sort of, sort of a shadow character that you kind of like wonder about, but it's like not important enough for him, for him to go back and tell you more about. At the center of this book is definitely the relationship between Little Dog and his mother. And it's an extremely difficult relationship because it's caring and close and beautiful. But his mother also 
hits him and he's very aware of the intergenerational trauma that comes down from his grandmother and his mother to him. And, and he has this maturity as a child character to reflect on that and really kind of to break the cycle. Of course, that's not not easy. Uh, we see him struggle throughout the book uh, with addiction and bullying. Little Dog and the author are gay, and that is something that other kids are very aware of, and uh, he's kind of mercilessly taunted for that, uh, for any effeminate characteristics that he has. But for him, there are these things that he admires about his mom that he then reflects in himself. So he, he really struggles with that, like being himself in society and being true to himself. Um, so he finds some reprieve in a summer job. Of course, he's not old enough to be working, um, but he does take a job at a tobacco field an hour away from his home where he bikes every day and, and tells his mom that he works closer at a like less, less uh, scary job. And of course, she's very, she's busy, not able to give him that much attention because she is, is working tirelessly at the nail salon where there are horrible chemicals that are very unhealthy and in the tobacco fields he meets another young boy Trevor and a lot of the novel focuses on their relationship again it's this beautiful beautiful relationship that is both so life-giving to him but also so so negative and he sees he sees Trevor for all that he is he is a white American boy who is brutal in all of these ways, but then is also caring to little dog. And they have this kind of like amazing love built on top of all of this ugliness. And of course, the way the author writes is incredibly moving, but also blunt. Like it, it's like both of those sides at once. He talks about things like, I don't know, like bowel movements and like sex and these things that like, you know, uh, to me wouldn't immediately be like the fodder for poetry, but it's all blended together in this way of making this like American immigrant story, this, this gorgeous thing, like every little part of it, even the hard stuff. So yeah, just an extremely moving book. And at the core, really have what I love about books and, and what I think Mark mentioned too of this like this philosophical uh, aspect of, of this, this character and this author who have a really strong way of viewing the world and are able to communicate that to us so, so well, despite the fact that it's, it's so indirect, like just the poetic language is, you know, not a way that you would ever speak to somebody or usually tell a story. And yet you are able to see the world through his eyes. So like, it was an experience for sure. Definitely. Like I said, like this book was a friend and I cannot wait to see what else the author does. I'm not always crazy about poetry so I do hope that he returns to some prose even though they're they're very loosely prose interestingly uh, Roxanne Gay gave it a gave it three stars out of five and she's very she's very effusive you know like what an amazing writer all of this stuff but like I just really couldn't get into it because there's no plot like you know I just need a story and there isn't a story so this is not a book for for people who want a story I think this is a book for people who want a character who want a way of looking at life and that is exactly what I want. <laughs> so I think that I can see that Mark and I are going to have quite a bit of crossover. A lot of the books on his list are ones that I want to read. However, I'm going to totally piggyback off of Gabriel and say that it is exactly like this is what I want to be. I want everything to be like hard and, and literary and like something for me to learn from to gain a new perspective. But the reality is that maybe if I'm doing good is like one in three books because I'm going to read that and then I'm going to read a comic book and then I'm going to read a YA about nice gay couple then I'm gonna read a children's book and 10 picture books and then maybe I'll come back around and read the ministry of utmost happiness but only if I can find it on audiobook uh, so I will definitely be taking more recommendations from Mark but I think they're going to be in amongst some some lighter lighter stuff 
However, in the meantime, I do strongly, strongly recommend On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. But go into it with with open expectations. <laughs> it's going to be uh, brutal and and beautiful and different, very different from other books that you have read. Yay, we have a book twin finally, I think. Closest one, probably. <laughs> so Mark, tell us why this book ends up on your favorite list. Yeah, I think definitely the language and like the style of the writing was the number one for sure. Just like because he is a poet, he finds like associations and words and things like that that you might not normally find in like a longer narrative. I found that very interesting as well as just in general, like the ability to sort of draw on particular moments, the connections between these moments, like throughout like the first years of his life and his family to serve to me in a way that does kind of create a kind of plot, even though it's not like a plot with like a definitive ending or like definitive arc, like going back, because it does go back and forth in time. Like one scene, maybe like one year, then it's like when he's a child again, now he's like teen again, like back and forth kind of narrative, which can be a little bit difficult at times, but I just found it because it almost follows his thought process in a way, like from going from one thing to another throughout his life. It's a bit difficult to describe in a way, but I just found it very interesting and unique, like his perspective and his way of combining all these things together to create the story. And that's, I want to go back and mention, I didn't say anything about really about the grandma, but that's, yeah, like an important part of it is that it's also going through time and space. Um, We get to hear a lot about her, um in vietnam uh and then and and sort of see what happens to her over time um yeah which was something that an a thread that i really enjoyed following great awesome well thank you so much everyone for uh, reading a mark book thank you mark um for so patiently listening to us talk about your books I can tell that you're going to bring something quite different, maybe like, you know, yeah, I think Fiona is right, like probably closer to Fiona's style every now and then, I think. Uh, Fiona can probably introduce you to mushroom, quiet mushroom foraging at some point, but I can see that you're going to have a lot of like really thoughtful books that you're going to bring to us, really challenging books, you know, that will challenge all of us. So we'll get video game recommendations from Gabriel, and then we'll have some philosophical like reads from Mark. So everything's going to be balanced out. Um, and that's what that was exciting about this show. You know, we all have like a good, unique perspective. So thank you again, everyone, for joining us for Keep It Fictional, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.